is a masterpiece of spirituality. In less than 60 words, if you take the fuller version in Matthew and you read it slowly, it takes about a minute. The strange thing about the prayer is that it may be very short, but it takes all eternity to reach its final consummation. You may like to have a quiz over your lunch today. I don't know if you know that radio program, Just a Minute, where you're given a chosen word or topic and you have to speak about it without hesitation, repetition, or deviation. This series, I understand, is all part of a greater landscape of exploring prayer in the church. Try this. Speak on prayer for a minute without hesitation, repetition, or deviation. Or try your own study with the Lord's Prayer using the same method. Does this prayer hesitate, repeat, or deviate? The prayer itself has a long history in Christian worship. In the very first century, it's mentioned in a document called the Teaching of the Twelve or the Didache. There are instructions in this document given to clerics and communicants of all kinds. And they include, for example, baptism, but it must be in running water. It includes instructions about fasting, but you fast on a Wednesday or a Friday, never on a Monday or a Thursday, because of those days are used by hypocrites. There's also instruction about the Lord's Prayer and how we might use it and a warning to use it without hypocrisy. It comes just between teaching on baptism in this document and the Lord's Supper. The prayer, in a sense, was seen as uh, a way in which of teaching and training and getting people to think through their relationship with God. When you get to A.D. 350, a guy called Cyril of Jerusalem gave a series of lectures on the Christian sacraments. And in these 24 catechetical lectures, in the very last one, he explains the service of Holy Communion and the kind of prayers that were to be said in that service. The Lord's Prayer is placed immediately before taking communion. Many scholars have looked at these documents and come to the conclusion that basically the Lord's Prayer in the early days of the church was used to or reserved for full members of the church. It was a constituent part of the Lord's Supper. It was part of the preparation for baptism. Each petition in terms of preparing a person for baptism had to be repeated and memorized and expounded. It was then used after baptism 
as a means to declare their Christian identification. So basically in those early days, the prayer was used in a limited sense in full membership of being a committed, baptized, communion-taking believer. Of course, the Lord's Prayer nowadays has become very much more the property of the people. And in modern Christianity, if you like, today, to say our Father in heaven and so on is a kind of liturgical uh, value or device and has a lot of meaning for a lot of people in many church traditions. I also discovered in, in, in researching, and look at this uh, sermon, that um, the Lord's Prayer is also very much part of an entrepreneurship in today's world. You may not explore very much into this world, but apparently those who have an eye for the religious market use the Lord's Prayer in all kinds of ways. You can buy the Lord's Prayer in all kinds of things. You can buy it on a mug. You can buy it on a pendant and hang it round your neck. You can even buy it on cufflinks and have one part on each arm. You can also buy it um, as a pillowcase. And so each night when you go to bed, you can rest your head on the Lord's Prayer. To preach on this wonderful phrase that I've been given is a bit of a daunting task because I'm very conscious of the intensity of three words. Your kingdom come. And it would require lots of study from my part, your part, to really get into this. So what I'd like to do with you is to share with you four questions about this phrase. What kind of questions can we ask to try and build up our understanding of what is meant when we pray, your kingdom come? So question number one is, whose kingdom is it? Now, there are several kingdoms or dominions in the Bible and in life itself. First of all, there are the kingdoms of humanity. These are mentioned throughout Scripture, and we're all too aware of them in our present world. Human civilization can be mapped out in terms of physical kingdoms or territory because land and power have always been the object of desire for well, all tribes and nations and empires. The biblical story in Genesis 11 records the rise of nations. The chroniclers record the rise of kings. The prophets record the rise and fall of great empires like the Babylonian and the Assyrian. The Acts record the rise of the Roman Empire. And not to mention, of course, in our day, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Soviet Union, the Nazi Germany, and so on. Empires come and empires go. And human civilization, one way of mapping it is to use the idea of empire or kingdom. Another way is to think of it in terms of the great civilization as an economic thing. How the old world, the old world of the old Europe as it were, became the new world dominated by the United States and now more so perhaps moving into Asia. The idea of economic kingdoms. But there are other kinds of human kingdom that perhaps we're more intimate or familiar with. These are described as the kingdoms of self. You'll recognize some of them. They continue to flourish and propagate among us all. One of these kingdoms is human ambition. 
One of these kingdoms is power, influence, greed, prestige, pride. All of these kingdoms of self rule in many lives and shape our modern world. Big business, media corporations, global enterprises, global coverage are the common currency vocabulary that we use. So firstly, there are kingdoms that belong to humanity. Secondly, in the Bible, there are kingdoms that belong to Satan. These are many and varied. And if you look in your Bible in Luke chapter 11, you'll find the juxtaposition of our key phrase, which is Luke chapter 11, verse 2, where you find your kingdom come. The juxtaposition of the prayer, which comes in its full entirety here in verses 1 to 13, following that, you find teaching about the kingdom of Satan. You find that Jesus is being accused of being in league with the devil and of practicing some kind of black magic. So in the prayer itself, you get reference to the kingdom of God, which we'll speak about in a moment. But following it, in a juxtaposition to it, is about the kingdom of Satan. There's an implication in the structure of this chapter, and I don't need to tell you in your own lives, in our lives, in the society in which we live, an implication of war, an implication of conflict, an implication that there are coexisting kingdoms going on on earth at this very moment. They're the kingdoms that we ourselves have invented, or the kingdoms of self, and there's the kingdom of Satan. And thirdly, we come, of course, to the kingdom of God. Now that kingdom is mentioned in Luke numerous times. I read two passages to you where it mentions, for example, in chapter 13, verse 28 that we read, it talks about the kingdom, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. It's a reference to the kingdom of God, as it were, existing in the past. That by faith, looking forward, these great men of God are in the kingdom. In chapter 17 that I read, in verse 21, we then read, of the kingdom of God being within you. So we have a reference to existing in the past, a reference it to it being active in your lives and hearts today. And if you like, in chapter 11, verse 2, your kingdom come has the implication of a kingdom that is in the future. Here in this particular thing, particular verse, particular section, it's defined as a fatherly kingdom. It is the kingdom of the Father. So, for example, in this passage, you find the first three petitions, the first three requests of this kingdom, or this kingdom prayer, express concern for the glory of God in relation to the Father's name, in relation to the Father's kingdom, and in relation to the Father's will, which I'll bring out a little later on. So whose kingdom 
is this kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of the Father. The King is the Father. And the Father is the King. This kingdom exists, coexists presently, alongside kingdoms of humanity and kingdom of Satan. Second question. What kind of kingdom is it? Well, there are three basic understandings, and these are not separate understandings, nor are they unrelated understandings of what the divine kingdom is in the Bible. But it certainly helps us in a morning like this to try and quickly get a handle on what kind of kingdom am I praying for when I pray, your kingdom come. Firstly, the basic understanding that the kingdom of God is about universal sovereignty. God is king and reigns sovereign over nature and over history. As the psalm says in 103 verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. So that's one understanding. Secondly, it means personal reign now. If you like, the kingdom of God is the royal rule of God. It's derived from a Greek word which means to rule or to reign. So it's really praying, your reign, your rule, come. It's the kingship of God, personally accepted and experienced in a human life. And we read about it, the kingdom of God is within you, like a grain of mustard seed growing. That kind of present reality. So it's about universal sovereignty. It's about personal reign now. Thirdly, it's about future consummation. When we pray this, we're not only praying for personal reign, but future consummation. A time is coming. In one of the commentators on this, he says, a time is coming when all evil will be done away and people will gladly submit to the divine sovereign. The Bible says it even better than the commentators in Revelation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. Better still, or not better still, but alongside that, is Jesus in Matthew, chapter 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are prepared by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So when we pray this, what are we praying? Well, this is not a request that God's universal sovereignty will be exercised because that's always in force. This prayer brings together those two other things. This is a reference to God's saving reign. God is present now. God is going to, in the future, bring this all to being. So if you like, it's two things. Two key words. One key word is expansion. When we pray, your kingdom come, we pray for the expansion of God's saving reign of His kingship 
on earth now. Through the church witness, His rule of righteousness established by His grace, and a demand for people's faith and obedience. So it's about expansion. Secondly, it's about consummation. It's a prayer that God's saving reign will come to fruition entirely and completely and forever when Jesus comes in power and in glory. That verb come has the force and implication of suddenness. That glorious full realization, that moment when God's will is fully done on earth. So when we pray this prayer, we're talking about personal reign and rule and kingship. Who rules my life? And we're talking about future consummation. We're talking about expansion and that consummation. The third question is, how does this kingdom come? We've established that the kingdom is the kingdom of God, but there are other kingdoms that we need to deal with. The kingdoms we create, both externally and internally, and the kingdoms created by Satan. But the kingdom of God is central. We've established it's about expansion and consummation, this prayer. So how does it come? Well, a number of ways. Firstly, the most obvious. It comes by prayer. Remember this prayer, if it's not too obvious to point out, is about praying. It's about praying for the kingdom. It's about praying that the kingdom of God's reign will come. It's about expansion. It's about consummation. It's about praying for that. Many churches have helpfully taken this on board and used this phrase in many practical and very helpful ways. It's a kind of springboard for evangelistic praying, for missionary praying. The history of missions is always the history of prayer. And what we have here is a helpful guideline, a very practical means of doing it. Let me give you an example. Take the words, your kingdom come. We'll use them as your personal rule in life. Breaking into a life and bringing a new lordship and rule. Take this and think through. Your kingdom come to my husband. Because he's not a Christian. He doesn't know your kingdom. He doesn't know your rule. And I love him. But I long in my heart for your kingdom there. Your kingdom come to my son who's not here this morning and I don't know where he was last night. But I love him. And I want your kingdom there. Your kingdom come to my daughter. Your kingdom come to my boss. 
because unless your kingdom comes to my boss, I can't stand them anymore. But if your kingdom was in his life, my life would be easier and he would be in heaven. Your kingdom come to my neighbor. Your kingdom come to those who live next door to you last night and turned the music up so you didn't sleep well. Your kingdom come. Take it on another level. Your kingdom come to my MSP. For he or she needs you so much. And we need, you need, a government with hearts that are in the kingdom. Let's take it another level. Your kingdom come to North Korea where they're being hurt and the Christians are being persecuted. Your kingdom come to Iraq. Your kingdom come to whatever your country is. The kingdom comes by prayer. Secondly, the kingdom comes by preaching and evangelism. Jesus, when he came into Galilee, recorded in Mark chapter 1, it says he came into Galilee, he was preaching and teaching, and what he was saying is the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, by this prayer, we ask that all hindrances and obstacles may bring people under his dominion. We're praying that the obstacles to some of the people that we've mentioned here this morning and are in your heart, that those obstacles will be done away with. It's partly done by preaching, partly done by evangelism, partly done by the ministry of the Spirit, the secret power of the Spirit of God. The kingdom is growing, expanding, and I became very conscious as I, as I looked at this and thought about this, and you as Charlotte Chapel. This is enshrined in your statement of purpose, which I'm sure is enshrined upon many of your hearts, I hope. It says four things, basically. I'm going to read the last one. Charlotte Baptist Chapel exists True. To glorify God as we endeavor, and the fourth point is, to extend God's kingdom by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and demonstrating His love and action so that others might confess Christ as Savior and Lord. It's in the very fabric, the very sinews, the very nerve ends of all you stand for. Your kingdom come by preaching, by evangelism, by witness. Thirdly, the kingdom comes by the return of Jesus. 
This I refer to, obviously, the idea of consummation and bringing that kingdom to an end. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he succinctly twins the idea together and he brings in this whole question, this whole idea of the kingdom. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, and so on. It comes by prayer, it comes by preaching and evangelism, and it comes by the return of Jesus. But wait a minute. I pray, I preach, I witness, I wait for Jesus to return. But there's a fourth thing. I think it also comes by voice in the kingdom. I am a voice in the kingdom. I am a voice from the kingdom. So, I work in secular society. I challenge my church to get involved in society. I encourage my friends to work in society. You see, your kingdom come is a value judgment. It's not just a prayer. It's proclaiming something deep and profound. It's saying, it's giving a value judgment about whose reign is better. It's saying God's reign is better. Let it come. And we're in a power struggle when we pray it with the kingdoms of the world. That's why it's so difficult to pray this. Your kingdom comes. So we want to be involved in society. We want to get into Christian citizenship, politics, law, social work. We want to get into policing and teaching and the National Health Service and so on. We want to confront evil and injustice and oppression. We want to support the weak and the vulnerable and the poor. We best await the consummation, the return of Jesus. We best await that not by staring into the sky, but by staring into the eyes of those who live in other kingdoms. Kingdoms of greed and materialism and selfishness. And asking ourselves, as I look into their eyes and as I wait for my king to come back, how can I help? Fourth question and last question. Who can pray this? Who can pray this deep and powerful prayer? Let me suggest briefly a description of the person who can pray this. Firstly, to pray this with integrity, you need to be a person who knows and trusts the loving Father. The perfect Father who is ready to welcome us and to answer our prayers. The loving Father we trust to give what is best. You heard of this at the beginning of the month. Secondly, those who hallow His name. Those who practice what they pray. Those who have a redirected relationship, a focus on that holy life. Thirdly, those who know and do the will of God. There's a parallelism here. Because it says, your kingdom come. And then there is a footnote, maybe in your Bible, or certainly in the longer version of Matthew, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like saying two different things. You know, like your wife or friend says to you, says one thing one time, and then says another thing another time, like put up those shelves, and then they have to say, well, 
is another way of getting around to getting a job actually done. So you have to say things a couple of times, but you mean the same thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, the kingdom can be defined as God's society upon earth, where God's will is done. And we have to pray for that. And that prayer is deeply personal. Because to be a person who prays this, is to be a person who obeys the will of God. Therefore, the prayer is deeply personal. The kingdom is personal. It demands my will to be submitted to that kingdom. It demands my life to be submitted to that kingdom. And that is costly. Remember the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane, but not my will, but yet your will be done. So when we pray this prayer, we are saying, I want my will to be submitted to His will. And fourthly, those who put His kingdom first daily. Your kingdom come instead of my kingdom come. Instead of my world. Instead of my petty little empires. Instead of my silly little will. Instead of my own little name. Let your name be glorified. So when we pray this prayer... What are we saying? Well, I think we're saying something about God. We're expressing an extraordinary confidence in God. It's sublime theology. I want His kingdom because He is my perfect Father and my loving Father. It's not like standing in the streets when Saddam Hussein ruled Iraq and saying we want his rule and deep inside and they couldn't say it because we fear him no no this is we want God's rule because we trust him and we love him and we owe everything to him secondly it says something about the world when I pray your kingdom come, it's a prayer for revolution. It's a prayer for the downthrow of other kingdoms and the upbuilding of God's kingdom. When I pray this, thirdly, I say something about myself. This prayer is about ultimate regime change. Our kingdoms overthrown by His. Your kingdom first. I can't pray this and live under the old regime where I rule. I submit myself as I pray. A few years ago, uh, Yvonne and I went uh, on a visit to Pasadena in Southern California. And we went to a morning service with some very gracious old saints of God, a professor and his wife, and they took us to their church. And the music was great, wonderful. The reverence, the sense of God's presence was very clear. And the sermon wasn't bad at all. At the end of the service, I was introduced to the pastor. He had one of those names that make you want to laugh out loud and say, You're kidding. 
So he came very brightly, as pastors tend to do, and he shook your hand and he said, he said, took my hand and he said, Welcome in. I am Dennis O'Pray. O apostrophe P-R-A-Y. And I felt like saying, Thank you, I'm Ian. Oh, pray for me. Peter, oh, pray. Ian, oh, pray. Charlotte Chapel, oh, pray. Your kingdom come. Let's pray together.